Oh, Lord God, as we continue to go through your word and see what it means to be a Baptist, God, I ask that you help me as I teach from your word. God, may I be faithful to it, but also may I build up the congregation. God, I also pray for the people here. May they listen to the words and be encouraged in it. And may they understand what they believe and why. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I asked this question the very first week, and I want to ask it again. Who knows why they are a Baptist? Raise your hand. Who actually knows why they are a Baptist versus a Presbyterian, Lutheran? Okay, we have two hands. (laughs) Uh, One hand and an okay symbol. So we've been going through Baptist essentials. In the first week, we talked about what is the church, which may not seem very relevant when we're just talking about Baptist essential. We talked about church discipline, but then we understood church discipline directly in light of church membership. If we are going to have members, we must have a way to discipline them. And then we start getting to the full understanding of why we're going through church, church discipline, church membership, when we hit baptism in the Lord's Supper. So who is part of the church dictates who takes the Lord's Supper and who is part of the church matters on who we baptize. And this is where we're going to have a strong disagreement between Presbyterians who will argue that infants are part of the covenant in one sense. So they will baptize them. And we start getting a very different understanding. Like, well, who is the church then? Well, who should you do church discipline on? If you're going to baptize a kid, why don't we discipline, go through church discipline when we have a five-year-old that's rebelling? Why don't they do that? In fact, some Presbyterian church don't take the Lord's, they don't let kids take the Lord's Supper, but they'll baptize them. To me, that seems inconsistent. Here, we let anyone who professes Christ to take part in the Lord's Supper. But there's another caveat that Pastor Rolla always gets. He says, unless you are under church discipline. And the reason for that is, when someone performs church discipline, it is the church saying, we don't recognize you as a Christian. Your profession of the faith, in one sense, is not valid. Or we don't take it seriously because of your lifestyle. You have been unrepentant, which is a sign of an unbeliever. So now we start seeing who the church matters, who we discipline matters, who is actually part of the covenant community. Wally handled last week, just briefly, covenant theology. And we start understanding from covenant theology, we start understanding who is part of the covenant. Baptists believe that we are part of the new covenant, Versus Presbyterians will go back and try making connections to the Old Testament and almost understanding some of the Old Covenant stuff in light of the New. And we're like, no, no, there's a discontinuity. It's not a continuous chain. There's a New Covenant, which means the Old, in one sense, has gone away. This week, we now talk about congregationalism. How many of you here have actually heard and understand what that word actually means? Can you raise your hand? Who actually 
hath heard of congregationalism. Okay. So it seems like a lot of us are not that familiar with congregationalism. We're also going to be talking about what role and authority pastors have. So congregationalism, if we just say it, is the idea of self-governing or autonomy of the local church. And how does this relate to Baptist essentials? It is because there are a lot of different views on church government and how churches are run. So let me give some examples that are in your notes. The Catholic, the way that they have church government, I would say it's completely unbiblical, but they're almost going off of um, some bad foundations where they have the Pope and then they have archbishops and underneath them are bishops and they have an episcopal with the Pope and they, it's a view of a hierarchy structure of church government. So you have the Pope at the top and he can make overarching decisions that affect all Catholic churches globally. And then you have archbishops and you start getting to people who have authority over these regions. The reason we would say that is unbiblical is you have people that are not part of a local church making decisions for the church that may not be right for that congregation. Second, we believe that the office of the Pope is unbiblical, and there's a lot of issues with that. So what about the Presbyterians? They have what's called a general assembly where pastors, and they say both ruling pastors and teaching pastors, they make a distinction, and they will meet together, and they will vote on stuff and make decisions for groups of churches. And so they'll make these decisions at the general assembly, and then the decisions that are made go back to smaller churches. So what people make, the decision that people make on a larger scale impacts smaller local churches. And again, part of the issue with that is each congregation has its own needs and wants and its own issues, and the strongest model of church discipline is at the most local and central because the pastors can make a decision based on what their congregation needs. And that's actually part of the issue of general assembly. You have people who are not part of a congregation making decisions for other congregations. And sometimes this goes to an extreme where you will actually have pastors put into churches they're not part of it at all. It's like, okay, we're going to have this new pastor go to this other Presbyterian church, and you're going to become the pastor now with almost no say of the congregation, which can lead to other issues. Like, okay, we don't know this man. A group of people say that he's qualified and he's moving across state to now pastor us. Let's hope he's good and isn't heretical. It comes from a larger assembly. Now, Baptists... And one of the main Baptist distinctions are they are self-autonomous. They are self-governing, which means they make decisions on a local level. So our pastors, and I will be using the word pastor and elder interchangeably, um, the pastors of that church make decisions for that church. So we have a Southern Baptist convention, 
but what they say is not binding on this church here. And we can think of the decisions that were made last year with critical race theory, and they were saying it's a useful tool. Our church denies that. And so self-autonomous churches make their own decisions based on what is needed for that congregation. This is oftentimes called congregationalism. And Presbyterians, they call it elder-ruled governance. And then the Catholics are Episcopal, meaning a hierarchy. So we are congregational with Presbyterians are elder-led, or I'm sorry, elder-ruled. Now, there are different authorities within the church. So this is the next point. So first there is the head of the church, which is Jesus Christ, which you can turn to Ephesians chapter 5, and we'll take a brief look. Just for the sake of time, we're not going to spend too much time in the authority that Jesus Christ has, just because we're mainly focusing on the congregation's responsibility and the pastor's responsibility. So Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 22. Wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of his church, his body and himself his Savior. So we will beginning with the foundation belief that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. How does Jesus rule nowadays? He has given us his word, and that is what we must follow. Jesus Christ has given his word. We, as a church, now follow his rule by following what is commanded in the Bible. The next type of authority is the congregation. So, We'll be going to the next two verses in a few minutes, but it's Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. This is in the context of Jesus talking to Peter, and he asks, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, yes, that is right, Peter. And on that statement, on that statement that Peter made, that Jesus Christ is Lord, he will build his church And then it says something else. It says, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. We'll be going to that in a little bit. So the context is it's written to the larger church through application, and it is then applied by giving us the keys, which are a form of authority. And then in Matthew 18, when it's talking about church discipline, it uses that same phrase, loosed and bound. And so the congregation has authority too. They have authority in church discipline, and we'll be going into that a little bit more. So the first authority is Jesus Christ. The second authority is the congregation, or we could use a different word, the church. And the third form of authority is the elders. In Hebrews 13, it says, Submit and obey the pastors or elders, for they are keeping watch over your soul. So those are the three types of authority. Jesus, congregation, and the elders. 
So let's talk about the authority of the congregation. So turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16. So I just broke this down a little bit, but let's, let me reread some of the verses. Starting at verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What this is saying is first, it's a form of authority, but we have to understand what this key in the loose in context of John 20, where it says, um, let's, let's have you guys put your finger in Matthew 16 and turn over the John 20, and I'm going to make the connection there. So again, the idea is what does it mean to loose and bind here? John chapter 20 starting at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors were being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and spoke to them and said, Peace be with you. And when he said this thing, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw him. And Jesus said to them, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even as I am sending you. And when he said these things, he breathed on them and received, and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And here's the verse we're going to be looking at. If you forgive the sins of any, they will be forgiven. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. That's the connection I want to make. Loosing and bound, forgiving and withholding forgiveness. This is not saying that the church or the congregation can outright say, your sins are forgiven on my authority. What it is, it is recognizing what has already been done in that person's life. Let me give a different example. If you get a passport and you go to another country and you lose your passport, you go to the United States Embassy and you prove your citizenship. The embassy doesn't make you a United States citizen. It only recognizes that you are already a citizen. That's what this verse is talking about. When the church is called to loose and bind, it is just recognizing what has already been declared in heaven. So I can say on good authority that many of you who I know I can say that your sins have been forgiven because of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. And I can say that because I recognize the fruit of your life. And so in church discipline, what ends up happening is the church as a whole is saying you are not living a godly life. You are unrepentant, which shows you can't even be called a Christian. And it's recognizing and almost declaring, we don't think you're a Christian because you're not living like a Christian. So the keys in loosing and bounding are just recognizing what is already declared in heaven.
Do we have any questions on that? So the church's authority is just to recognize what is already declared in heaven. We recognize that people are forgiven because Jesus Christ has already died on the cross for that person's sin. And so that is what it's referring to. In the same way that the U.S. Embassy only recognizes citizenship, not making people citizens. Sheila. So, I believe in some churches, you're loosing and binding declarations, and like more in the charismatic. So you're loosing and binding declarations or promises that might not be your promise. So when we look at it, is it okay to say it's more like loosing and binding people? What, what is the loosing and binding? It is recognizing what has already been declared in heaven. So the Lamb's Book of Life, every believer has their name written in there. So the loosing is almost just declaring that it's been written already. So... The I don't know, is the terminology, I mean, it's just a weird terminology to wrap your mind around that idea for me. <laughs> so binding is binding the promise that's already there and true. You're affirming by binding that promise or what's true in the word. So let me give a very practical. So an application is when we have our members meeting and we vote in somebody, we are binding them or we are recognizing their declaration of salvation and having them covenant or join bind with us so it's in that kind of thing, that's how we apply the binding in church discipline we are loosing the person you are not living like a christian we've gone through step one one person then two people then we brought the church you're still unrepentant, you are loosed. You do not show fruit. Don't call yourself a Christian. We're not recognizing you as a Christian because of your lifestyle. Does that help, Sheila? Yes. Yes. Body, yes. Which is why it's important for us to understand who the church is. We have the global church, it's just recognizing who is actually a Christian. We're not declaring the person a Christian, we're only recognizing what Christ has already done in their heart. Any other questions? So church membership, our next point, is a job. Or I could say differently, there are responsibilities that you being part of this church requires of you. That is why when you covenant with this church, there's a page or two pages of stuff that says, I will do this, I covenant to do this, I covenant to do this. Because you are joining a church, there's responsibilities that you as a church member are given. So the first one is kind of like what we had handled with um, affirming gospel citizenship. 
But one of the other things is help preserve the gospel. So that's job number one. Help preserve the gospel. So turn over to Galatians chapter 1. So one of the roles of the congregation is to preserve the gospel. Galatians chapter 1, starting at verse 6. This is Paul writing to the church, and this is one of his most shocking introductions in the New Testament. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is a different gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we have preached to you, let him be accursed or damned. As we have said before, so I will say it again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. Paul is saying, do not tolerate false teaching in the slightest. Don't let anyone tell you a false gospel. Reject it, for that person's soul is damned. They are teaching a false gospel, a different way of being saved that isn't actually going to save them. And so the church is supposed to reject that kind of teaching. Don't let it be said. But even if we or an angel from heaven teaches a different gospel, it's like, no, don't let it be. Don't let the false teaching happen. It is to, it is to reject any form of false teaching. And then Galatians chapter 2. Peter has been sitting with only the Jews because he, has a, he was influenced by the Judaizer of the church who's saying you can only eat with Jewish people, you can only associate with them, uh, you have to be circumcised, you have to live according to these Jewish traditions. And by Peter's lifestyle, he was denying the truth of the gospel that Gentiles can also be saved. So look at Galatians 2 verses 11 through 14. But when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For certain men had come from James, and he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hip hypocritically along with him, so that even Barabbas was led astray by hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step, with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force a Gentile to live like a Jew? Paul rebukes Peter for what it says, for living contrary to the truth of the gospel. So if somebody preaches a different gospel, you don't tolerate. If someone lives in such a manner that also rejects the gospel, you rebuke them. So church membership helps preserve the gospel 
truth. And if you don't rebuke or correct it, you are then held responsible for that false teaching. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul is writing to Timothy, and he warns them that there will come false teachers that will preach what people want to hear. It says that they are scratching, itching ears, which means these people want to hear a certain message, so a certain false teacher rises up and starts preaching what the people want to hear. The issue with that is they are listening to the false teaching, not rebuking it, because they actually want the false teaching. So when someone starts preaching about health, wealth, and prosperity, and that's all the Christian life is meant to be, it's because people actually just want that. They don't really care about suffering and persecution. They just want the health. They want the wealth of it. So 2 Timothy is telling us that person is responsible because that's what they wanted to hear. So the false teaching, the false teacher is held responsible and the congregation is responsible. So if any of our pastors or any of our teachers, matter of fact, teach something that is contrary to the gospel, that person should be first removed from their teaching position. In the form of a pastor, we should rightfully vote and remove that pastor from their position, which is actually the joy of being congregationalists. We can actually remove a pastor because we have that authority, which goes into job number two and three. So job two is to help affirm gospel citizenship, and then three is authority and discipline. The verses actually overlap heavily. So Matthew 18, dealing with church discipline. We have already talked about that the church has responsibility to discipline its members and rightfully to remove them from the membership and to declare that they are not truly saved. So the congregation both recognizes true Christians by their confession, and it recognizes false confessions and calls them out. Also turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. First Corinthians chapter 5, verses 4 through 5, the context is there is a man who is sleeping with his mother-in-law, and Paul rebukes him because it's a heinous sin that not even unbelievers or pagans accept, and that this person should be removed. Starting at verse 3. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit, and if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you assemble in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, 
so that his soul might be saved in the day of the Lord. The church has the authority and obligation to remove people who are smearing the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the mud by their lifestyle. How often do we hear of people saying, I don't want to have anything to do with the church because there's hypocrites in the church and they say this and they don't live like a Christian. That hurts the name of Christ and it hinders our witness as a whole of the church. This church in 1 Corinthians was tolerating a man who was having sexual relationship with his mother and um, or his father's wife and his is such an evil thing that not even unbelievers will tolerate that. And so it is now the job of the congregation to remove this person from membership or gospel citizenship. Essentially saying, we don't think you're a Christian, and asking that person to leave the church in the case of 1 Corinthians. On the flip side, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. So 1 Corinthians is dealing with a man who is in sin. 2 Corinthians is about restoring a man who has been repentant. If anyone has cause for pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough so that you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may become overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote to you, that I might test you and know whether you will be obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I will also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have anything to forgive, has been for the sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So there was a church member who was causing a commotion, causing some issues in the church. The majority essentially removed him from the church and didn't have anything to do with him. This person has now repented, and Paul commands the church to reaffirm their love or invite them back. They are now welcome because now they are shown true fruit of being a Christian. So job number two, the congregation or the church recognizes members and remove members from the church. That is why in our business meetings, we regularly vote in people and sometimes when people move away, we remove them from membership because they are no longer part of our congregation. And in the case of church discipline, we remove them because of their lifestyle is no longer in line with the truth of the gospel. And now we see job three deals with the discipline. It is through the discipline process that members are then removed. Now, do we have any questions on the responsibilities or the jobs of the congregation? In one sense, 
we could actually expand some of the roles and responsibility of the congregation as a whole. And that's partly because a majority of the New Testament is written specifically to churches. So it often says, to the church in Galatia, to the church in Thessalonica, and it keeps mentioning the churches, and it gives instructions for what they might do as a church. And so there are a lot of other responsibilities that we could include. We could talk about their responsibility is to listen to the word. But James says, don't be just a listener of the word, be a doer of the word, so obey the word. Hebrews says that they need to submit to the pastors. And Timothy talks about praying for those who are in authority above you. We could talk over and over about the different commands that the church gives. But we could just sum it up and love one another. We've already talked about discipline, correcting false teachings. In Acts chapter 6, when the apostles and the teachers are teaching, there comes a need for the widows and the Hellenists to be given food. And so the church is told to choose seven men among you to essentially become deacons and to serve the church. So one of the other responsibilities that we could touch upon is the responsibility to elect leaders from Acts 6. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, people are suing each other. And Paul says, is there not one among you who is wise enough to make this decision? And Hebrews talks about, you'll be judging angels. You guys should be able to work this out on your own. So the congregation could also be judges in terms of making decisions when there are disagreements within the church. In fact, in Acts 15, when there's a Jerusalem council and they're trying to make a decision, it specifically says that the apostles and the elders and with the whole church came to choose among them to send Paul and Barnabas somewhere. So there are decision-making aspects of the congregation. So when we're talking about congregationalism, we are talking about the authority and the responsibility that the church members, the congregational, the congregation has as a whole to do. This is in opposition to an elder-ruled position. So a Presbyterian church is modeled where they say elder rule. The elders make all the decisions and they can trump anything that the congregation wants or suggests because they are the boss and really they can't be overturned. But in a congregational approach, which I would say is biblical, the congregation can also function as the emergency break in the case of a pastor making bad decisions or unbiblical. So if our pastor starts preaching false teaching, the congregation can pull the emergency break and say, no, you can't preach that. If you continue, you'll be removed from your office and we'll remove you from membership. So the congregation has the responsibility and the role versus an elder-ruled approach that just says, elders, make all the decisions, 
congregation, just submit no matter what. And that is not, why we say, the biblical approach. So, we should make some distinctions. The congregation does not have complete control. There are some churches that hold to a congregational approach where they make every single decision, including the color of the carpet. And how many times do we just joke around with church splits that happen over the carpet color? In one sense, that is a waste of the congregational's time because they don't need to be in a member's meeting making every single minute detail for the church. We actually rely on both the elders and the deacons to make some of those decisions for the church. But for the important issues of where the congregation actually has responsibilities, that's where we meet in church business meetings. That's where we actually vote. In fact, there are some views that there should be a deacon board and the deacons make all the decisions. And we see the dangers of that where the deacons just go rogue and they start making every single decision and no one can stop them because it's essentially five or so men making all the distinction and there's no way, to st- no way to stop them. But congregationalism allows for emergency breaks to be pulled in case of a rogue pastor. And this is also against having just a single pastor making all the decisions. So my point is congregationalism is the self-rule of a congregation where the congregation has, ru- has responsibilities. But now we talk about the elders' responsibilities. Now before I move to the elders' responsibilities, do we have any questions on the congregation responsibilities? Cortland? Um, would you say that like to help pres- uh, preserve the gospel, another one of our responsibilities is for each of us to keep each other dedicated to the gospel. So Cortland is asking, um, in reference to helping preserve the gospel, if if each person should help keep each other dedicated. Is that correct, Cortland? So yes, I would actually agree with that, mainly because the Hebrews. It talks about building one another up. Um, there also is First John where we confess our sins to one another. There is this accountability that happens among members. Um, so it's more than just rebuking the elders, but it also is rebuking other members too. So yes, Cortland. Okay, so let's go over the authority of the elders. So the elders or pastors they only have authority for as long as their Bible is open. And what I mean by that is the authority that they have is from Jesus Christ that is written down in his word, and that is what they must follow. They based all the stuff that they say based on careful examination of the word. Turn to Hebrews chapter 13, and let me explain this. Hebrews 13, verse 
17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for what advantage would that be to you? So we are to obey and submit to our leaders. Now the natural question is, what does it mean to obey and what does it mean to submit? When we say obey, this is not a blind obedience or a raw obedience. Whatever the pastor says, they get. They're supposed to obey. But the word obey is understood in light of persuasion or being convinced. So it is obeying because they have convinced you or persuaded you that that is what the Bible says. Just think about the Bereans. They examine stuff at the church to look at it. And so obey means as far as they can convince you from the scriptures that that is right. And so when the pastors go up to this podium every single week, they go up there with the Bible and they explain the Bible and they go verse by verse and make sense of it. And so in their preaching, as we are listening, we should be examining, is this what the Bible actually means? Are they handling the word of God rightly? I would say for this church, yes. And so I would say properly that I obey because I am convinced by the scriptures and by what they are saying from the scriptures that what our pastors are saying is right and true. So I obey because I'm convinced that that's what the Bible actually says. And they're just handling the word of God rightfully. And the word submit, we could think of it like yield. Yield to, um, in a traffic situation, you yield because they have the right of way. So it's almost yielding like you are intentionally stopping and submitting to the person and you are choosing to. You can choose to go through a yield sign. Might be kind of dangerous. But that's the idea of submitting. We are submitting because we are recognizing that what our leader is saying is coming from the word of God. So again, it's not a raw or a blind obedience, but it is an obedience that comes through persuasion. We are persuaded that what they are saying is from the Bible. And this is kind of the difference where I would make a distinction for an elder ruled, which is what a Presbyterian would say, an elder led. So our pastors, they lead us according to Scripture, and as far as they obey Scripture, we follow. Versus a Presbyterian model would just say, almost follow because they are the rulers and don't question it. So there's kind of the difference. There's elder ruled, which is Presbyterian, and there's elder-led congregationalism, which points out the elders have responsibility to lead us in certain areas, and the congregation has certain responsibilities, and we submit, and we are in our own spheres of authority. So the congregation has the authority to um, preserve gospel truth, to affirm membership and discipline, 
And the pastors have the authority to teach the word of God. They are to pray, and we are to submit to them. So there's different responsibility. There's different authority that is given to the church and different authority that is given to the elders. Any questions on that? Bonnie? You had mentioned that elder roles kind of more of a tendency towards Presbyterian. Would you say congregational is a tendency towards Baptist? Or yes. So Bonnie's asking um, elder rule is typically Presbyterian and Baptist is typically congregationalism. And the main distinction is because the local autonomy of the church where elder rule would oftentimes include other churches or the general assembly with like the PCA. Does that make sense, Bonnie? Wally? Are we like a, more of a hybrid, hybrid? Like if I was to look up like congregationalism historically, would we say maybe they would have hold too much more authority of the congregation whereas we kind of have more of like a hybrid between the two or what congregationalism has always been how you're describing it so when i was trying to find the historical background actually so wally's just asking what is the historical background of congregationalism and where do they lean towards do they lean towards pure congregationalism what's the historical background i've found a lot of different points of view, so it's hard to say. I, w I would say that historically it has recognized different levels of authority between the elders and the congregation, so we rightfully hold to that position, mainly because it's biblical. Um, Sheila. they decided on the call, I think that we should not complain or grumble. And I've heard of that in this church about grumbling about things that don't really matter. So we should submit even in those little things that are preferences. Maybe not a biblical background for the color of carpet, but preferences. <laughs> so Sheila is just saying that there are churches that do split over the color of the carpet. She is encouraging us to not make squabbles or complaining about very minor issues that the pastors and the deacons make. Although if the pastors decide to have a hot pink carpet, there could be some rightful complaining. <laughs> so the, the thing I would almost want to say is if the pastors do make a decision, they should be able to apply wisdom where the Bible doesn't speak and be able to convince you that is the right thing. Uh, Priscilla, did you have a question? So elder ruled is the Presbyterian model, and it is normally that the pastors can make all the decisions completely by themselves. Elder-led, and normally we include the word congregationalism after it, just means that the elders have their responsibility and the congregation has their responsibility. So again, that's where the job difference comes in. Does that make sense? Okay, so 
The next passage we'll handle is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. First Thessalonians chapter 5, starting at verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect, or some translations say honor or recognize, those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in your love because of their work. So um, I want to focus on the word like respect. Some translations use recognize. What this is saying is that we are called to recognize the authority, the God-given authority of the leaders above us. And from that recognition, we're saying we recognize that God has put you in a position over me to lead me in a way of godliness. So, First Thessalonians saying, recognize the leaders, and from that recognition kind of comes the honor, the esteem highly, and respect those above you. So the authority of a pastor comes from God, and we are just recognizing the God-given responsibility that the pastors have. Okay, another verse for the authority of the elders. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter five, starting at verse one. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over them in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. So the word subject that's used right there in verse 5 that's the same word that is talked about in Romans 13 where it says to be subject to the government. And so pastors who are in charge over us, it gives them commands, do it this way, not like this. Don't be domineering, but do it out of love. But it commands us to be subject in the same way that we are subject to the government. We follow the pastor's instruction as far as it is within their authority. And what I mean by that is when we think back to COVID-19 and all the silly rules that were made, a lot of them overstepped their natural authority and they were dictating, your family must live this way. And, w- and a rightful Christian, like, you don't have authority to tell me in that aspect of life. So, but where they do have authority to speak where the government has authority to punish evildoers and collect taxes, we obey willingly 
and without complaining because we recognize that they have that authority and we submit or we are subject to it again because that authority is from God. So we submit, we obey, we are subject to our elders because God has put these men in charge of us. What are their responsibilities? For the sake of time, I will move kind of quickly through this. The elder's responsibility is to minister the word and to pray. In Acts chapter 6, they are, again, that's the context of choosing deacons, and it's because they say, we don't have time to be waiting on tables because we need to focus on the preaching of the word and for prayer, so choose deacons to handle those other responsibilities. So the elders are to preach the word and pray for us. They are also called to gather and protect. So this gathering holds the same idea that Jesus, when the one sheep goes astray, Jesus goes after that lost sheep, and Jesus is our great shepherd. The, past, the pastors are just the under-shepherds, so they are seeking to be like Jesus. So the pastors are to gather and protect the flock. In Acts chapter 20, uh, with Paul speaking, it says, be careful or pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseas. Be or to care for the church of God, which he ordained by his, obtained by his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So that's Acts chapter 20. The pastor is to protect the flock from false teaching or wolves. And it also talks about them being overseers or watchers of your soul. Another responsibility that a pastor has is to lead by example. So in 1 Peter chapter 5, it talks about they are to be an example to the flock. They are to lead by example. Okay, any questions on the responsibilities of a pastor? Then another point is the plurality of elders. So there are some churches that hold to one main pastor who has all the authority, but the Bible is very clear that there should be multiple elders in charge of a church making these decisions. So first Peter says, so I exhort the elders, being plural, among you. Second Timothy chapter 2 says, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men. Again, men being plural. So there's a plurality of elders. And finally, finally Timothy, or in Titus chapter 1, it says, This is why I left you in Creed, so that you may put in order what I have told you and appoint elders, being plural, in every town. So God, in his wisdom, has commanded that we have multiple pastors making the decision so that there is not one rogue pastor trying to make all the calls. Uh, 
the last point. How does this all fit together? Ephesians chapter 4 talks about how God has given us apostles and preachers and teachers and prophets, and it says, for the purposing of building up the church for ministry. So the pastor preaches the word and he equips the congregation to minister to others. The pastor does not do everything. That's why we're not elder-led. But the pastors preach the word and help build up the local church and equip them for ministry. So we are not a passive congregation that just sits in our seats every week and listens. We have our responsibilities. We have our roles. But we're not on the flip side. We don't have all the power to decide every single minute detail. We have our different roles and we have our different responsibilities. The pastor has their roles of handling the preaching and the teaching of the word. The deacons have their role of handling um, the physical needs of the church. The congregation has a role of recognizing people into the church and voting them in and doing church discipline. So each different group has their own responsibility. So why are we congregationalism? It's because we believe in this church that God gives different authorities. There isn't anyone above our pastors. We don't submit to the Southern Baptist Convention. We may attend, but we believe that our church is self-governing, which means in this body we handle the needs for this group because God has given this congregation for the pastors to oversee. God has not commanded our pastors to minister to Christians in other churches, but just this one. Do we have any questions on congregationalism or different authorities? Okay, let me pray for us. Oh Lord God, we thank you for your word. And God, we thank you for the wisdom that it gives to us. God, I pray that we may honor you in all our decisions, in the way that we structure our church. May we be faithful to your word. And God, may you just help our pastors in their roles. But God, may you help the congregation in their responsibilities. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.